Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you are listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. Well, tonight is something else. The title tonight, of course, is The Medical Industrial Complex Consumes One of Its Own. Now, this is actually really a review of a book, When Breath Becomes Air, and this was written by a brilliant individual, Paul Kalanisi. Unfortunately, he's no longer alive, as uh, the title implies he was consumed. But this book literally lays out step by step by step everything that happens in medical school to prepare doctors to uh, torture, mutilate, and kill patients, and the whole process as it happens to patients. And what we see is doctors, in this case, all, deceiving themselves and being totally distracted by the, the glitz, the ceremony, uh, the sophistry, and pseudoscience. And at the same time, we see the medical industrial complex deliberately deceiving patients, teaching doctors to deceive patients. And we see how Paul himself was lied to every step of the way, and even when he knew better, made the conscious or unconscious decision to accept these lies. And what he reveals in his book, uh, more in an expository way, in other words, just by uh, detail, 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 rather than any analysis, is exactly how this happens and how the system is engineered to do this. And this is an awesome book. You really should read it. I, you know, there's about 8 billion people on the world in the earth. I think they should all read this book. And uh, it's When Breath Becomes Air. It is available on Amazon. You can get the free PDF if you just Google it. But I personally paid money for the book. And I would pay for it again uh, for gifts for other people. So I want to say that up front. I think Paul is a great guy. What happened to him was, of course, most unfortunate. But it's something that happens or can happen to all of us. And as I go through this, I'm also going to show or explain to you why 
it happened to Paul and why it did not happen to other people. Okay, so uh, he starts off the book, thank God, by basically pretty much announcing uh, his, his cancer. And uh, he says, well, you know, the, the diagnosis is obvious. He could see all the cloudy metastases all over the x-ray. And then he says, uh, he went to see an old cosplay from Stanford, and her sister had died suddenly as a neurosurgery intern after getting a virulent, that means a powerful infection. So, of course, why is it a neurosurgical resident would die of a viral inf- of an infection when, say, your regular man in the street might not? So we're going we're gonna, to uh, get to this. And so he goes to see his doctor, and he's been sick for a while. He's been losing weight, having night sweats, classic symptoms of cancer. And his doctor says, I think we should get x-rays first. And, of course, Paul, pretty bright guy, realizes that, hey, X-rays are not going to show cancer. He says X-rays are useless for cancer. Of course, they don't tell you guys that, but we, we know that. And so he says, because lately there's a major cost-saving emphasis. She started with the cheap test first, even though, given the clinical picture, she was going to end up spending more money by doing a cheap test, cheap irrelevant test first, and then proceeding to the next most expensive test. And so by way of saving money, the medical industrial complex actually puts in protocols that cause more money to be spent. And so he was shocked when, when he realized he knew more than his doctor. And so he asked himself, why was he so authoritative as a surgeon when he had his white coat on, but so meek when he had a patient gown on? And um, then he um, reflected on his 100-hour work weeks as a neurosurgeon intern. He says, ibuprofen, that's the medicine, uh, that suppresses the immune system, by the way, got me through the day. Ten years of relentless training, that's four years of medical school and six years of residency. He did not count as four years of college. Um, He said, I earned the respect of, of my seniors. I won prestigious awards, and I was getting job offers from major universities. So really what he was doing was he was seeking external gratification. So the things that he did, he did because of external values, external direction, external reinforcement. This is always bad because the only person that has your uh, interest at heart is you. And when you ask yourself, well, did I get an A? Well, did I get this award? Well, is this being recognized? then you're distracted from the true value, the intrinsic value of whatever it is that you're doing. In other words, you're much, likely, much more likely to be led astray, which if we see, he is. And he says, I had reached the mountaintop. I could see the promised land, finally becoming the husband I'd promised to be. Then a few weeks later, chest pain, night sweats, persistent cough, and uh, it's all over. And so the question throughout the book, in the reader's mind, although Paul has no pity for himself, the reader would ask, and Paul occasionally hinted, why would he at age 36 get cancer of the lungs spreading to his brain? Those of you who were veterans at the uh, natural healing might notice that 
if you're going to eat Diet Coke and ice cream every day for lunch and you're going to take energy drinks all night to stay up so you can do a 100-hour work week, then these things might contribute tremendously to getting cancer. Also, the chronic sleep deprivation. So we know that nighttime, preferably 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is when the body repairs itself, and this is a time of night where uh, this neurosurgery regimen did not have rest, his body did not have time to repair. And so, of course, uh, it put a strain on his marriage, the residency, and uh, being away and being absent. And so he says, oh, my gosh, we're so close to the life we always wanted. And his wife, of course, is ready to leave him now because she's saying, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're never home. We, we don't really have a relationship. Do you really think things are going to get better when you get your dream job of an academic neurosurgery attending, which, of course, that was even worse. So he, he mentions that he's in the operating room for 36 hours straight, uh, and he had back spasms uh, that were so bad they made him grind his teeth. And he knew about back pain because as a neurosurgeon he operated on it, but he didn't understand what it was like. And um, he was uh, suffering and suffering. And so he goes to the doctor, he um, tells her all of his symptoms, things are pretty bad, and he finally has the opportunity to look at his x-rays, and he sees that it's pretty bad news. And so he looks at his x-ray lungs, it looks blurry, and the doctor said she wasn't sure what that meant. And he said, she knew, I knew, in other words, the doctor was misrepresenting her level of, of certainty that this was bad. And so with that, he said, the future I had imagined about to be realized, decades of striving evaporated. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, is how did he get there? We know from passages in the book where he talks about what he had to eat, what he was doing, uh, basically the only foods he mentioned were uh, energy drinks, diet, soda pop, ice cream, sandwiches, and whiskey. I'm sure he ate more things, don't get me wrong. But a diet with those things prominent would likely give just about anyone cancer over a, say, 10-year period. Now, so the other question then is, is how could he uh, have overlooked this? So he mentioned his father, who was a doctor, and his father um, had moved from a city, we we'll call it New York, to a rural area where there was a lower cost of living and on a doctor's pay he could afford to raise his family and send his kids to school. And he noticed that his father was gone before he woke up and got to bed after he went to bed. And so he said all he knew was the price of medicine was simply too high. In other words, never seeing the kids, never seeing uh the, the family. And so he grew up and his mother was very concerned about his education. So she called back east to get a reading list, all the classics. Uh, you know, the, the Greek tragedies, um, you know, all the classic books everyone's supposed to read that most people try to avoid reading. But Paul read them all. And so 
basically had a college prep reading list, and by 10 years old, he read the whole list. And he felt these books provide him new views of the world. And when you read his book, you realize that what happened was these classics that he read shaped his reasoning. And his reasoning, while it may have appeared uh, profound, uh, was through or borrowed from these books. And so what might be obvious to, say, a three-year-old just looking at something, um, he didn't see it that way. He would say, oh, this reminds me of this book when so-and-so said such-and-such, and that's what it means. And so that creates a short circuit in the person's uh, reasoning. And so what he concluded after reading all these books was that the mind was the operation of the brain. This is a dangerous conclusion. And the brain was the machinery. And in other words, what he saw was that the mind and the brain were just anatomical pieces and parts. And if you believe that, then you believe that a neurosurgeon can go in there, slice this, slice that, cut this out, put this in, whatever, and fix things. And of course, uh, that's not the case. But he said he felt literature was the best account of the life of the mind and neuroscience. And he felt, and this is a, a gripping quote, if the unexamined life is not worth living, and he's referring to his life now in terms of having studied for so many years, is the unlived life worth examining? In other words, what he realized was that he actually was not living his life. He was reading all these books, he was thinking all these thoughts, but he actually wasn't living a life. And so then the question is, how can you... Is an unlived life worth examining? But thank God for us, he went ahead and examined it anyway. And so um, what he decided then was he wanted to understand what makes life meaningful. He wanted to understand uh, what it is that people go through in terms of facing um, death. And so he at one point went to a um, home for people who were children who were born with defects uh, or who were brain damaged. And so this whole big, big institution was filled with all these brain damaged people. And what he concluded was that um, you know, brains give rise to our ability to form relationships and make life meaningful, and sometimes these brains break. But the next level, which he failed to deduce or conclude, was that scientists often cannot fix these broken brains. And so he goes on to go to Stanford, and um, he majors in literature, which is really awesome. And he decides then to go into medicine because literature was too political and too anti-science. And of course, what does he write his thesis on? The medicalization of personality, which of course he's uh, all in favor of and it was well received. And again, what we are living through right now in 2016 is indeed the medicalization of personality. The idea that you can take a pill to be happy, a pill to calm you down, a pill to go to sleep, a pill to wake up, is literally the medicalization of personality and a pill to help you want the right things. And so um, 
he believed Walt Whitman himself when Whitman said, only the physician could truly understand the physiological, spiritual man. And that's when he decided to go to medical school. So this is, under, this is important. He went to medical school and becoming a doctor to help himself understand the physiological, spiritual man. So he didn't go to medical school to cure people. This is an important concept because many people go to medical school because they want to cure people. They want someone to be better off after seeing them than before. And this is, this is, this is a goal. Like I went to medical school, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted a person to come see me, and as a result of seeing me, as a result of our interaction, they would leave having a better life, being in better health. That was my goal. And because that was my goal, I was horrified at how totally ineffective medicine was. But this is not why he went to medical school. And so he didn't notice how ineffective everything was. Or to the extent that it was ineffective, that wasn't a problem. It was okay, no problem. No problem. And so he went to medical school to find answers that are not in books, answers um, that will allow him to forge relationships with the suffering and find out what makes life meaningful even in the face of death and decay. And so with these questions in mind, if these are the questions you're seeking answers to, which is what he was seeking answers to, this is his own admission, his book he wrote, you're not going to notice that everything in medicine is ineffective because you're just there to forge relationships with the suffering and to understand what makes human life meaningful in the face of death and decay. And so the fact that there's a whole lot of death and decay all around you, you're like, oh, great, the more to study. Rather than saying, wait a minute, this stuff is not working. There's a problem over here. And so he went to uh, Yale Medical School with that in mind. And you have to um, look at the anatomy class. First thing you do is they throw you right into anatomy class, dissecting a cadaver. And this kind of troubled me because, really, I didn't see where dissecting that cadaver was a huge impact on my medical education. But he gets the essence of it right here. He says, here you are violating society's most fundamental taboos, taboos. Cadaver dissection epitomizes the transformation into the callous, arrogant doctor. And that's exactly it. And he totally lays it bare. And that's what medical school is all about, transforming what was once a caring 22-year-old into a callous, arrogant 26-year-old. And so he says, yet... Um, the anatomy professors advise that we leave the face covered. It makes the work easier. So cover the cadaver's face. That way it's easier to slice this body and not realize it was a person. And the analogy, of course, is the hospital gown uh, on the patient makes it easier to torture and mutilate the patient. So of course, he doesn't draw that analogy. This book is very um, expository. In other words, he just gives you the information lays it all out there, and it's like, wow, holy smoke. And this cadaver, the doctor says, probably died of pancreatic cancer, though there's no scar for that, because the pancreatic cancer killed the patient too quick. So the doctor is saying, had he had the surgery for pancreatic cancer, we would see the scar, and he still would have died of it. Again, totally over the author's head. Um, that here we are with a person who has an illness, and we're going to give him therapy that we know is ineffective, but oops, he died too soon before we could do it. 
Um, then in a cadaver's stomach, what they find? Morphine pills, which leads them to believe the patient died in pain. In other words, pain pills were ineffective. So we have ineffective surgery, ineffective pain pills. And then they say, well, you know, modern-day medical schools are more humane because in the beginning, uh, medical students had to go and kill people to bring in their own cadaver. Then they went to robbing graves to get bodies for the cadavers. And now we've actually talked people into donating their bodies before death so we have enough cadavers to train the medical students. And so you have to, when I went to medical school, I had no idea. I did not, I was not familiar with the history of medicine. I didn't know that medical students were encouraged to go kill people um, so they could have cadavers to dissect. But knowing this, he continued in medical school. Why? Because he's seeking to forge a relationship with the suffering and the dying. So what better place than the place where everybody is suffering and dying? And then, uh, as one anatomy professor put it to me, you wouldn't tell a patient the gory details of a surgery if that would make them not consent, would you? And so here's a professor in medical school saying, hey, it's okay to misrepresent procedures to patients and to lie to them if doing so would make them more likely to submit to a procedure or surgery. And so, of course, they were speculating that if these donors knew what was going on with their bodies, they might not allow it. And so he even goes on to say it was not a simple evil. All of medicine invades the body in every way imaginable. Doctors escort patients into the world and escort them out. And he saw nothing wrong with that. Um, why not be an undertaker? You don't need all this highfalutin technical training just to escort someone out of the world because everyone's going to die anyway. So what is the marginal benefit that you created in this person's life if all you're doing is walking by their side and ushering them to their grave? But again, he went to medical school to forge a relationship with the suffering. And so, again, this went totally over his head. And he says suffering becomes a mere pedagogical tool. In other words, suffering becomes a mere teaching tool. And to anyone contemplating being a patient, this is horrifying, that your doctor would think your suffering is merely, merely an educational opportunity. Most people who assume the role of patients have some intent of getting better, some intent of somehow uh, improving. And so... Uh, one striking, uh, he makes a reference to his wife in this book only once. And he mentions that, that you know, of course, they're medical students together, that she sees an EKG, she sees this going squiggle, 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 and then it goes a little squiggle and then a straight line, which means, of course, the patient died. And she, she realizes, oh, my God, this is a life. This is a life that just got snuffed out, and she cries. And so he found this pretty striking. And that's, of course, shocking to the reader because wouldn't anyone cry? Wouldn't anyone see that this is a life, not only that died, but that was not improved by medicine. This person was under medical therapy, under medical care when he died, uh, being billed to the tune of at least $1,000 a day. That was all pointless for naught. You know, he, 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 his money was wasted. And so he also studied literature at the uh, history of Me- in History of Medicine in Cambridge, England, which is great. And so... He's studying medicine to bear witness 
to the mysteries of death. And again, if you're studying, if you're into medical school to bear witness to the dying and to forge relationships with people who are dying, then it's pretty easy to overlook the obvious, which is the medical care is not especially effective. And so he um, gives a story of a person covered in blood and failure, a doctor, uh, who wrote this, uh, another book a while ago. He says, medical school had changed by the time I got there, but the, the, uh, we were barely allowed to touch patients. The heroic spirit of responsibility amid blood and failure. This is the true image of a doctor. And so the doctor is someone who's covered in blood and mired in failure. And so again, if, if you go to medical school and you're not looking to cure people or fix people, then you would not notice that everything going on here is either A, not helpful, or geez, holy cow, could it possibly be harmful? I mean, I was so distressed by the lack of success that at the end of every semester, I was in the dean's office saying, this stuff is not working. You guys got to, you know, up your game here. Teach me something that's a little more effective. You know, what do you got planned? What's going on here? You know, I can't take this kind of nonsense back to the ghetto. You know, people want results. And so, it's this, again, this is totally, totally uh, missed. Now, he has this lady. She's got twins, and she's hooked up to a monitor in the hospital. Now, he says she has no prenatal care and no insurance, which, by the way, is irrelevant because there is no intervention during uh, the pregnancy that doctors create that can stop prematurity, just by the way. Uh, and so she has two twins. They're eight weeks premature, and the decision is made to do an emergency C-section. The anesthesiologist intubates the patient. Um, the babies are immediately passed off to the neonatal intensive care doctors. So now we got the anesthesiologist getting paid, the OBGYN getting paid, two neonatologists, because you don't, one sick baby is enough to keep one neonatologist totally busy. So you have two neonatologists getting paid. You have an extra um, neonatal nurse, at least, if not two. And so the list gets pretty big. I've seen delivery rooms for twins so cramped, there was barely any room for the poor lady. And the, the babies die two days later. And so even though he's there to witness suffering, he does go to his senior and say, hey, what up with this? And he says, well, if, if they died, you know, did we do the right thing by doing the C-section? And the senior doctor says, no question. This, we did the right thing. And he says, and so he's so shocked, and so she reads his face, and she says, well, you think that's bad? Most mothers with stillborns still have to go through labor and delivery. And this is a total uh, misappropriation of the situation. It is much safer to have a vaginal delivery than to have a C-section. So by having a C-section for these twins, this mother's life was endangered in many ways. And there is a measurable death rate from C-section that does not exist with vaginal birth. And so why should this lady risk death when her kids were already doomed to die? What would be accomplished by her having uh, a scarred, disfigured abdomen 
enduring an eight-week or more recovery healing period when she could have just had these babies vaginally and been back to normal health in two or three days because, after all, they were premature, very small, not a big deal. And, and so he even goes further to press his senior and says, what happens if you didn't do the C-section? And she says, well, of course, they would die. Well, wait, they died anyway. So he's, again, getting this overwhelming uh, witness of failure, 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 medical intervention, um, intervention and, and results are disappointing. And so he says, well, what do you do? How do you know? You know, if you do the C-section too early, if you do it, if you do it too early, the babies die because they're premature. You do it too late, the babies die because you sh- they should have been out. And so he says, well, how do you know? How do you read these squiggly lines? And what does she say? Shrug your shoulders, judgment call. What does that mean? It means it's not scientific at all. It means that these squiggles that are going on, the baby monitor, when you're being monitored, are basically things that are not easily uh, interpreted. And so he then bumps into another fellow surgical resident who's crying in the hallway. Why? Because there's a surgery that she might have to do. And if the patient has localized disease, they got to do a 16-hour abdominal surgery. If the patient has a spread of the cancer everywhere and is hopeless, then they get to close up in uh, three minutes basically and go home. And she's in the hall crying because she's praying that there's widespread cancer so that she can go home and get some sleep because she's been sleeping so many hours. Now, it's easy to call these doctors callous and sensitive, but the point is these situations are deliberately structured this way, deliberately contrived this way to create um, a callous human being. And so uh, it's a situation where these doctors are being... um, or being hardened. And so Paul takes a look at this and says, you know what, I'm going to be better than that. I'm not going to be like my colleagues. I'm, I'm going to, you know, stand up and do this. So he says, um, most students pick pay, work environment, and hours as to what specialty they want to go into, but why put lifestyle first? Because that's a job, not a calling. Again, it's not true. You can do a calling uh, and still pick something that's going to allow you to sleep and get regular meals. And so he decided, I would choose neurosurgery as my specialty. And um, he decided that he wanted the challenge. And guess what, by golly, he got the challenge. And so he wants to, again, examine questions intersecting life, death, and meaning, and He's saying these questions usually arise in a medical context. And again, what this speaks to is his total lack of living his life. So had he, for example, um, got married as a teenager at the age of 18 or 19, he would have realized that questions concerning life, death, and meaning don't always involve doctors. In fact, they don't have to, and usually they don't. And the other thing that he uh, deduced from his reading of lots of literature is that disease are molecules misbehaving. Now, this is an important concept. If you believe that diseases are molecules misbehaving, then there's no way that drinking water, providing nutrition, or cleansing by removing toxins could in any way 
improve disease, right? Because it's just a bunch of molecules and they're misbehaving. And like a misbehaving child, you've got to maybe uh, you know, spank them, discipline them, do some surgery, whatever. And so this fundamental theory of disease that he has prevents him from attending to his own health and prevents him from questioning his own care as he slips down the slippery slope. And so he says brain surgery is the most dramatic event in these people's lives. And would you trade your ability to talk for a few extra months of life? Okay, this is the presumption that the surgery actually would extend the life and that it would be successful. Or would you like to enlarge your blind spot to reduce the possibility of a fatal or deadly brain hemorrhage? And, or would you lose the function of your right hand in order to stop seizures? And so these are the trade-offs he, as a neurosurgeon, helps people make. What makes life meaningful and enough to go on living. And so he goes through this process, through the book, and we come back to this whole underlying premise for attending medical school, which is to get closer to um, a death, basically, and examining death. And so he says, over the next seven years of training, we would grow from bearing witness to medical dramas to becoming leading actors in them. Most people who take out health insurance, most people who pay tens of thousands of dollars for a surgery or through a hospitalization, they don't expect that they're part of a medical drama with leading actors called doctors. They, patients are actually expecting that there is some scientific stuff going on here that is proven to be effective and that will benefit them. They do not realize that they are, are victims of a medical drama with leading actors called doctors. But he, although he exposes this, he glosses right over this as if it's totally acceptable. Whereas to a patient who is paying $500 or, or $2,000 or $4,000 a monthly insurance premium to realize that you're paying for a very expensive opera ticket is, is shocking. And so he says as an intern, he's a paper pusher and uh, you know, a clerk, but the workload is enormous. I can testify to that. And then um, the neurosurgery residents say, hey, this is your goal to be the best doctor. Make us proud. Again, it's this external uh, thing. We want you to respond to our approval. I can remember myself being an intern and people giving me those kind of pep talks like, no, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to make you proud. I'm here to do a good job. I'm here to learn everything I can so I can help patients get better. That's what I'm here for. And if that doesn't make you proud, well, this is too bad. And so he didn't have this division between external uh, goals or internal goals. And he set no limits on pleasing these uh, external uh, taskmasters. And so they even went so far as to tell him to eat with his left hand, become ambidextrous. And he says, yes, sir. I mean, there was just nothing uh, they could ask him to do that, that he would not do. And they say, oh, just a heads up, the chief resident is going through a divorce. And then, of course, as the book progresses and he becomes a chief resident, his marriage becomes shaky, and his wife says, I'm leaving. And so this is kind of uh, pre-staging uh, what's to come. And the guy on his way out the door says, only one thing I have to tell you is they can always hurt you more, but they can't stop the clock. 
And that's one thing they told me in residency. They can always hurt you more. So be thankful for every day, no matter how horrible, because it can always get worse. And uh, again, for me, I came from a different background. You know, I came from uh, African-American, inner city. Um, death was something that was always a possibility. And so every day you're making this calculation. Am I going to risk my life or am I not going to risk my life? And so you had this conscious decision that you did not have to risk your life. And uh, in the ghetto, basic attitude was, I am not going to help you kill me. You can kill me if you want to, but you're going to have to work at it, and you're going to have to do it for free, and you're going to have to make an effort, and you might get a few wounds yourself. So that was the basic attitude. So when I entered the residency situation, and I was confronted with this attitude that supposedly I'm supposed to accept punishment and abuse. I'm like, no, we draw the line. I will not be harmed. I will not be uh, assaulted. And I, I am not going to be abused. And so I was ready to walk away. I was ready to quit. And I was not going to pay with my life. And so unfortunately, Paul did not have that attitude. Paul came from a background where the possibility of death wasn't really anything he had seriously considered as a human being. Um, you know, he hadn't had very many attempts made in his life. He wasn't in a constant predatory environment where he had to say, wait a minute, this could kill me. I'm not going to do it. That person could kill me. I'm going to stay away from them. So he wasn't constantly making these small life and death decisions, uh, you know, throughout his life. All right. So he comes on. He was on to talk about an eight-year-old boy. He had a tumor in his brain. Surgeon removed the tumor. Everything was great. Kid went home. Three years later, it came back. Kid came back. It turned out the surgery was a total failure, and the kid was institutionalized the rest of his life. And you go over the uh, this book, patient after patient after patient dies, and this is an excellent one. Eighty-two-year-old woman was the healthiest person in the general surgery service, had a minor operation, and was dead uh, two days later. So the question is, well, it's obvious that the surgery killed her. It's pretty obvious. So if you have a minor surgery, that means a surgery for something that, that didn't have to be done, that she was going to do just fine. So uh, this happens again and again in the book we see. People come in with minor problems, they have surgery, and they die. And at no point does he draw the conclusion that the surgery uh, killed them. And in the first year, he says, I glimpse my share of death. And I can tell you, that first year of residency, when you see just the carnage, it is, it is shocking, it's jolting, because you know that some of this death had to uh, be caused by the care that was given. And a lot of it you see is caused by the care that was given. And for people who are even looking at that, um, you can console yourself by saying, well, that doctor was incompetent. I'm not going to do that. And that's what I told myself. But Paul didn't even have to tell himself that because all Paul was doing was he was trying to figure out, uh, you know, forge a relationship with people who are dying. So it worked out uh, just about right. And he said, but some days it had a suffocating weight of its own and the rain of tears of the families of the dying uh, you know, was just a tremendous burden. Uh, 
And that is another thing that's really stunning, is that the reign of tears of the families of the dying is what stresses you, that you can't look at this case and in the absence of any relatives say, this was wrong. I have tears of my own. This shouldn't have happened. And this was, it turned out to be actually his um, undoing. So he talks about the schedule took a toll, 100 hours a week, my eyes watered, my head throbbed, I downed energy drinks at 2 a.m. And not all residents could stand the pressure. What he didn't realize was he couldn't stand it either that these energy drinks, these diet drinks, these ice cream sandwiches, these whiskeys were all building a cancer, were all destroying his immune system, and that he was actually being consumed and being destroyed by this work schedule, by this brass ring that he was reaching for that was nothing more than fool's gold. And he said others would pay an even higher price. Uh, So the stress drove one resident out of the field, and she got a job in consulting. And he said others would pay an even higher price. And again, what Paul didn't realize is that he would soon pay with his life. And he said learning to judge lives whose lives could be saved, could not be saved, and should not be saved is an unattainable prognostic ability. In other words, it's not possible to develop a skill to determine whose lives could be saved, should be saved, and should not be saved. And so, I'm sorry, could be saved, could not be saved, and should not be saved. And this is really crossing the line. I mean, you're you're really... um, talking about a spiritual leader such as uh, uh, a religious leader that decides, you know, who should live and who should die. But this is not a scientific process. So if it's an unattainable prognostic ability, then obviously it's not based in science. And so he started a career, as he said, to pursue death, to grasp, uncloak it, see it eye to eye, unblinking, and to confront truly life and death decisions and struggles. And of course, um, he ended up confronting his own. And so he says that he was uh, grabbing his typical lunch, a Diet Coke and an ice cream sandwich, and his pager announced an incoming major trauma, and already he was planning a scalp incision, a whirlwind of activity, Um, and then after they put all the lines in and did this and did that and sliced and diced the guy, they decided death was to be preferred, and the family was brought in to view the body. And then he went back to finishing his Diet Coke and ice cream sandwich. Now, he didn't question, well, wait a minute. Why do we do all this stuff? Why do we disfigure and mutilate and maim this body? Of course, obviously, a lot of money changed hands in the process. And then, you know, for the family, this is, this is a, a, difficult, a difficult, uh, difficult thing to do. And so uh, a few days later, he heard that a friend of his uh, was hit by a car, had neurological surgery, and died the following day. And he said, and this is very important, the days when someone was simply killed in a car accident were long gone. Now, in addition to the car accident, there's the gurney, the tubes, the pounding on the chest, the shaving of the scalp, cutting scalp with the frenzy of the drill, the dust whirling, hair half-shaven, head deformed, uh, chest tubes, leg traction, and then, of course, you have a dead body for the family to view. And... Uh, he 
properly describes this as drama because none of this contributes anything to the patient because the patient ultimately dies. When I say ultimately dies, I mean in less than 48 hours. And so when he heard that his friend had a car accident and had neurological surgery, in his mind he went through this whole sequence of what he knew had happened to her, and it actually uh, made him cry. And so he felt he was on the way to becoming preoccupied with empty formalism, rote treatment of disease, and utterly missing the larger human significance. And so, of course, um, that was uh, exactly what happened to him. So as a resident, my highest ideal was not saving lives. Everyone dies eventually. But guiding a patient or family to an understanding of death or illness. And of course, this is totally inappropriate when you consider that 880,000 Americans are killed every year as a result of their medical therapy. If the doctors involved say, oh, my job to save lives, I just guide people to an understanding of death and illness, then you can see where the 880,000 deaths a year uh, come from. So, so we go on here, and he says he sees the long, painful only partial recovery of his patients sometimes, or more likely, no return at all of the person that the family remembers. And so this is, and so he then says he's the ambassador to help families understand the person they knew lived only in the past and to either help them uh, with the future of this disabled individual or help them with an easy death. And this is uh, shocking. And so then he goes on to say, I might have become a pastor if I had been more religious than I used. In other words, what doctors are doing is no more um, significant or determining than what a pastor does. So in other words, a pastor will pray for you, and maybe you'll get better, and maybe you won't. But there's not any kind of guarantee. There's no scientific studies. There's no assurance of this. But you have a doctor in a white coat who's gone through 10 years of training after college, and he is admitting here on the pages of this book that what he is finally able to do for people is no more than what a pastor would do. And this is a, a direct slap in the face to people, especially people who are religious, because what is this but a state-sponsored religion? It is a state-sponsored religion. For the state to compel people to submit to uh, white coats determining for them the meaning of their lives. Now, the as we get to Paul's illness, this could be two a two um, part radio show. But so he goes through this process. He finds out that he has metastatic cancer, and he says to the, he says as he's going to see his own doctor now, writing this book with a chance for this courageous seer to be a sayer to teach us to face death with dignity. Um, hey, this is the epilogue that his wife wrote. I just want to say that Paul is an awesome, outstanding writer. This book is very interesting, uh, enjoyable read. So what he says is, I may be writing. I don't know. And so it's not all that useful to spend time thinking about the future, that is, beyond lunch, because now he realizes that his time is, uh, is very short. And he says, everyone comes to 
the fact that life is finite. It's not forever. And most ambitions are achieved or abandoned. Either way, they belong to the past. The future flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, holds so little interest. A chasing after a wind, indeed. And so this is as it always should have been. He was robbed of his youth by looking to the future and ignoring the present. And if he had paid attention to the present, uh, he certainly wouldn't have got the cancer because, like his colleagues, he would have said, well, let me pick a residency that's not going to physically abuse my body. And uh, he would have done that. And so he finally finds at the end the true meaning of life, which was obscured by all of his education, obfuscation, and reading. And this is what happens. His daughter is born, and he says to his daughter, when you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied in this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. And so what he finally finds on his own deathbed is the true meaning of life is to produce another life. And that he had to go through all of this and all of this torture. I skipped through that part of the book because we're coming to the closely to the end of the time here. Uh, is that's the true tragedy. And he's such a great author. It is such a good book. You would definitely want him to live and write more books. But what he puts forward and exposes is at every step of the way, the patient himself being the patient, is, is deceived. Um, you know, and at no point is the predictive value of these tests uh, borne out. Uh, one good example is this one patient said, I reviewed the patient's MRI, um, the tumor, not a good sign. The um, hospital's tumor board had deemed the case too dangerous for surgery. How could the surgeon have opted to proceed? I became a little indignant at a certain point. It was our job to say no. So the patient was wheeled into the room. He fixed his eyes on me, pointed to his head and said, I want this thing out of my blank, blank brain. Got it? This guy sailed through surgery, did very well, and at the end of the surgery did fine, totally against all of the prognostic indicators on all of the x-ray scans and the studies. And so another thing that Paul reveals, well, one last thing, and then we can take questions. He says, the secret is to know but she says, our patients' lives and identities may be in our hands, yet death always wins. Again, this is an incredible indictment of the total futility of what doctors do. And it's, the secret is to know the deck is stacked. You cannot ever reach perfection, but you can believe. We're talking about faith here, right? Faith-based medicine. It takes faith because there is no evidence that this is true. That's why his friend Jess committed suicide. His friend ultimately committed suicide. He saw that what he was doing would never lead toward better uh, life for the patient or for himself. And so what Paul says is you can believe in asymptotic, that means an inclination, toward which you are ceaselessly striving. And of course, it's a matter of faith because there is no evidence that it's true. And um, when the deck has been stacked, what he's saying really is, 
they've been lied to throughout all of medical school. And so that is the book, basically, When Breath Becomes Air. There's a little bit more, but the um, chat room is hopping, so I think I'll answer a few questions here. (laughs) All right. Okay. What was the name of the book again? When Breath Becomes Air. Dr. Dance, how does the local coroner get paid in doing autopsies per patient, by the insurance company, by the state, or does it differ depending on how wealthy the area is? The coroner is generally a government employee, and the coroner often has a budget of so many autopsies he can do per year, and he has so much of a staff. And so he has to do a certain number of autopsies per year. And for the most part, he gets to decide which cases warrant an autopsy. As you can see, there's a big conflict of interest here. So this doctor is employed by the government. So obviously, if you have a government psyop where the government murders a bunch of people, maybe get people to go to war or whatever, then they can get the coroner to say whatever the cause of death is that they want it to be. And so coroners are not at all neutral. It's a, very, it's a political position, and it's a government-employed position. So I hope that helps. What causes... <laughs> okay, Dr. Daniels, by the way, what causes females to have excessive hair? Usually dairy, usually outside um, hormones. And so if the person is eating non-organic hormone-infested meat, that is usually the cause. Okay, I'm going to slide this down here. Dr. Daniels, the more people that die of cancer, the more the public seems to donate. Why do you think this is? Um, Personally, I think it's a strategy that the more people who die of cancer, the more serious people think the problem is and the more money they donate. But but obviously, um, a rational person would reverse that and say, wait a minute, if more people are dying of cancer, and I've been donating money all these years, then obviously, uh, the industry is not effective. (laughs) Dr. Daniels, the funny thing is, only when a celebrity or very wealthy person like Michael Jackson dies from medical intervention, is there ever any accountability? What's up with this? Again, I think what what escapes most people is the medical industrial complex is an arm of the government. And so all of these things are very political. And so you can expect then that decisions will be based more on on politics rather than on, uh, let's call it the the facts of the case. I mean, even um, the person in When Breath Becomes Air, when Paul dies, you take a look at this whole sequence, you just have to shake your head. Is seeing all that death during the first year necessary to numb medical students? Absolutely. Because when you see all of this death during the first year, and then you basically maim and mutilate and slice up this cadaver, it is very important in order to uh, desensitize you. And so once I saw all this death, my first year of, uh, actually it's the first year of internship that you really see the murdering. It's it's like 
I'm, you can't believe it. It's more deadly than a, than a battlefield. Um, so in the first year of medical school, you simply have experience slicing um, and mutilating this body that can't complain, can't fight back, and can't sue you, basically. And so that's important desensitization. Now when you're first year of residency and you see the true carnage, un, you know, unbridled, then um, that's when you're kind of hooked. You're like, oh, my God, this is just terrible. Well, at least I'll, I won't kill as many people as this. I'll, I'll, I'll be less deadly than this. And so that's when people start saying, hey, let me try and find um, a specialty that's not as deadly. Dr. Jens, what do you think we should do for fungus? I think you should go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida and get your free report about the candida cleaner. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is something I've never heard anywhere. Thank you very much, Dr. Daniels. I didn't understand that it's better to vaginally deliver a stillborn baby and require little recovery than to get a C-section and experience the trauma of, trauma of surgery, the deadly complications, and recovery time. It seems doctors are always pressing for the person to get the C-section. <laughs> okay. Dr. Downs, can the urge for sugar and junk be brought on by candida itself? And the answer is yes. Um, okay, Dr. Daniels, is end-of-life pain management ever just pain management, or is it to speed things along? It's actually both. Now, especially with hospice, and the, and the government says to hospice people or owners, or people who are paying for hospice care, this person must live less than six months. And so when you enter a hospice, you're pretty much um, giving your tacit, giving your tacit um, permission to be... Um, snuffed out okay that brings us pretty much to the end of our time here um, so again breath becomes air check it out awesome book um, he just reveals everything even unknowingly he even refers to the um, Greek tragedy which I've done a whole radio show on and so many of the terminology and languages he uses in his book really recaps many of the radio shows that I've done. And yet his total tone is totally supportive of, of the healthcare system. So it's really uh, an eye-opener. And in case you're thinking about becoming a patient, it lets you know that you're basically going to a um, religious leader picked by the government. All right, that is it. We are done. I'd like to remind people to please stop by VitalityCapsules.com. Get your free report, Candida Cleaner. That's VitalityCapsules.com forward slash Candida Cleaner. And as always, think happens, and we will see you next week.